0: Right, guys welcome back to the invisible practice podcast we're in episode 17 and i'm uh, very happy to have uh, one of my great friends here someone that uh, genuinely changed my magic and the way i look at magic a lot um shane cobalt shane how are you
1: i'm good but i mean that's a lot of pressure <laughs>
0: <laughs> no but it's just it's just i remember this this time when i for the first time visited blackpool i also met you and I just remember still showing you this earthness change. People that read my lecture notes have read the story. And just, you were like, oh yeah, but you can also do it like this. And you proceeded to show me like some variations of color changes and the one you do very beautifully that's like consistent. And I just remember at one point just there being 20 magicians around us, all just with their jaw on the floor. And you walk away because someone wants to show you something. And just after 10 seconds of just blank staring, a guy says, what the fuck just happened? And everyone just turns around and walks a different direction.
1: I, I, well, obviously, I didn't know that part of it, but I'm very glad to hear that. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny because you mentioned color changes. I don't know the the visual to me. I always imagined that magic's for 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 regular people was that you wave your hand and then and then something happens. Like it was always stuck in my head. Yeah, you have a deck of cards, you wave your hand over it, and the card changes whatever that happens to be. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So I just, I put a lot of time into making that look the way that I think people think it should look. It's it's like, it's a funny thing that we do as magicians. We forget what the audience thinks it should look like. We just do what we think it should look like because that's the way we can do it, but it doesn't match the way that it should look. mm -hmm. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. So you're, you're saying more like we get stuck in technique, right?
1: I'm saying that we get stuck by our limitations. Mm -hmm. So it's like, oh, I know how to make a card change. Maybe it's like the Houdini-Urdnay sort of style change. And therefore, that's the way I'll make a card change. But we very rarely think like, well, hold on a second. If I just told somebody, if a magician held a deck of cards and it was like you could see the face card, like the, the, the card on the top of the deck, the deck isn't so we can't see them. The deck is so that we can see them. <laughs> Excuse me. Pardon me. And I'm obviously I'm using terminology right now that's very specific to like to non-magicians, right? If it was a magician, it'd be like, "Look, if you had the deck face up and you made the card change, what would it look like? But you can't say that to layman because they don't know these these terms. So it becomes like, okay, if you had a deck in your hand and it was like like we could see all the cards. And then a magician were gonna make like was making that face card change, what would it look like to you? And you can do that. Go to a person that you know safely, of course hand them a deck and and describe that to them like if a magician made a card change what would it look like and they will sort of kind of try to tell you but they don't usually have the tools to do it very eloquently like i'm not doing it very eloquently right now but when they do give you the idea it's usually very different than what we do which means we're kind of forcing our magic to fit into their magic idea So the only thing that I think I've done a little, I mean, a little bit differently is I'm trying to be very, very, very um, aware of what people think it should look like when you describe it. You ever read a magic book and there's like effect and then method and they don't match. (laughs) It's like uh, the effect, a thought of card appears in the spectator's wallet. You're like, Oh my God, this is going to be a miracle. And you read the trick and it's like, force a card on somebody. You're like, I'm sorry, what? What do you mean force a card on somebody? When someone's not looking, make sure to take a duplicate and put it in their wallet. Then later, force them to choose that card. Open the wallet and find And you're like, you're just so disappointed with it because the way that you get to it does not match the way it was described to you mm. because that's not what you pictured in your head. As soon as we make our methods match our effects and they still have that power, now we've got something interesting. That's how I feel about it, at least.
0: Mm. But in some way, you're saying that we... Well, not necessarily lost it, but we, we don't capitalize enough on the capacity to make like a mental movie of something, right?
1: I think we've lost touch of what our audience imagines we can do.
0: Mm.
3: I,
1: I think we forget what, what's expected of us and we just do what we're capable of in the moment. So instead of doing stuff that the audience is actually potentially maybe asking for or looking forward to, we put them in, um, in a situation where we go, hey, watch this. And we do a change that just doesn't make sense or we do a moment of magic that they never asked for or that never they never thought was really magic in the first place like we've we've had to convince them that it's magic and then we do it for them but if we to- take a more um, maybe a more natural approach to the audience we can often put them in a position where it's like okay a card's going to disappear from the deck and appear in my wallet well what should that look like it should look very fair i mean they should be able to go and like pick a card whatever that card happens to be it's let's say it's a ten of hearts i'm just i have a deck of cards in front of me they look at that card. You close the deck up, you snap your fingers. And when you spread that card is now gone. You know, maybe we want to take it. It's like, Oh, which card is it? It's this card, the 10 of hearts. Perfect. Watch. Maybe we take the card we turn it face up amongst the face down cards. And they see it. and they go watch you close that deck, you snap. And when you spread now all the cards are face down. And when you turn them over and spread, same thing, all the cards are face up, including that, that card and that card just gone so it's like once we satisfy the idea of what the audience expects of us i think the magic gets so much stronger that it's um it's hard to ignore it's why people get so shocked by seeing some of the stuff i i I think i think um i think it's why some magicians get shocked by seeing some of the stuff that i'm doing is because it it's sort of it's what they wanted it to
3: be but they didn't know how to get there and i think we give up a little bit too soon but that's just me
0: I get what you're saying. How do you think we can get more into um, into touch with that with what the audience expects our magic to look like?
1: Start asking them. Mm-hmm. Right? Like stop stop being satisfied with what you're told. You know what? Stop believing magic press. That's the truth. Stop believing the magic hype or the magic press behind things. If you read an effect, you're like, oh wow, this sounds amazing. And then you read the, you read how it's done, you're like, "Ah, that's not so amazing. I I, I keep telling people this, and I always get pushback on it. And I understand why. I really do understand why. And the question is, or the statement is the 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 method is the effect. Hmm. The method is the effect. What you have to do to make the magic happen is what the magic has to look like. If you've got to have four people run halfway across the world and grab a croissant from, I don't know, a specific bakery and run it back to you, the effect is you need 20 minutes because they've got to run to do it. Even if the audience doesn't see what's happening to accomplish it, whatever you have to do has to happen for the trick to work. Mm. So the workings of the trick is the trick. It is what the audience has to see. No matter how you dress it up, no matter how you want to like present it, at the end of the day,
3: whatever the method, the way that you accomplish your magic is, is what the audience sees, even the parts they don't see. That to me is probably the most important thing that we've lost touch with.
1: We read a description, we believe the description, we do it the way that we're told, and then it doesn't quite match, but we're okay with it because we pulled it off.
0: Or we believe our
1: audience's applause too much. That's the other one. We think that because they clap that it's good, and the truth is that most people, not most, but many people are very polite. They'll, they'll clap for you no matter what. Oh, yeah. Like, I will, I will almost always give someone a round of applause on stage because I know how hard it is to get on stage. It's just a sign of respect for the person, you know what I mean? But when someone really rocks your world, I'm not really clapping so much. I'm usually actually kind of like jaw dropped. I'm usually just like, oh, my God. One time in Japan, I was so blown away by the magic, I was giggling like a schoolgirl. I was giddy. I was actually giddy. And in that moment, I was like, magic is real again. You know, like once you see someone that really puts you in that place, you realize that that's what you want to chase as well. Uh, And yeah, I've seen this woman in Japan just completely changed everything. Like, I I don't even know how to describe it. The magic was so real and I knew how it was working. It wasn't like I was, I wasn't fooled by the methods. I knew the methods. I just couldn't believe that it looked like that. It was so visually perfect as magic. And, and it had to be done live. I've seen, I'm I'm purposely not mentioning who it is just because we can't really go experience that magic right now. And there is video that you can go see of the particular magic, but it doesn't capture it. The only way to capture it is live. When you're there in the room, you just can't believe it. You can't believe it. Like you, it just, I, I was elated. You know, my cheekbones were hurting. I was smiling the whole time. I was looking at the people I was with and I was like, what is going on? And it was just three of us. It was just three of us. It was my translator, who's also a very dear friend. And it was um, it was a, a gentleman who was a fan of mine who brought me into the country to do a tour. And, it, and the whole guy, he was so kind. He shut down his whole place for us. Canceled the evening just to perform for the three of us. Unbelievable. And he performed the most incredible things I've ever seen in my life, live like that. And we were at the table with him. Like, it was like sitting at a dining room table almost. Not quite a dining room table, but we were sitting at a table together. And what he was doing was so extraordinary. I couldn't contain it. Like I was just like overjoyed with what I saw. I felt like a kid again in the best ways, really the best ways. And it just sort of, it makes you realize when magic looks exactly how you want magic to look, it just hits different, man. It hits completely different. And I think that we don't do that. We don't try to make magic look the way that magic should look. Our magic looks very unmagical.
0: It looks like what we could
1: do. Yeah. It's like what we're capable of right now. You know, it's like, if you ever seen someone who has a really bad double lift oh. and you're like, man, that would be so good if that double lift was just a little softer, you know, mm. or if you, you did like a LaPalle style one or a push off style one, you know what I mean? Mm. A, a technique sometimes is easily swappable with the exact same technique done in a different way. Mm. And I think a lot of the time we're we're very satisfied to only have like one way of doing everything one double lift, one false shuffle, one palm, one pass, one cut, one force. And when we only have one, all of our magic has to be limited by those things. So whenever it needs a pass or a force or something, we always do the same one. And that's not necessary for the trick. Maybe the trick is a trick where you gotta, you gotta like flip through cards instead of swing them out. So your classic force doesn't work, but you're going to classic force anyways, because that's just the one, you know? So I feel like a lot of the time we, we don't have the right color of paint, let's say, but we are the brush, you know what I mean? Mm. we got a lot of black and a lot of red, so everything's black and red. But when you start getting so many more colors to work with, you can start painting such beautiful pictures. And I I think that's kind of like, you know, the right color or the right technique for the right trick makes a world of difference. And I think that that's probably the biggest thing that we we either ignore or, or we miss or we don't, that we take for granted. I think we take for granted. We take technique for granted,
3: assuming all technique is created equal, and it simply is not.
0: Mm. So how do we get more colors?
3: Read more books.
0: Read more books?
1: That's really important. Yeah, I think one of the things that we also ignore is that, you know, the internet is not a place to learn magic. Um, I know that that's a place where a lot of people are learning magic, and that's great. But the one thing about magic on the internet is it's not google proof. After you learn whatever it is you learned on YouTube or, or through something online that was easily accessible to you, once you go and show that to somebody, if your audience can kind of guess at like, oh, a magician, cards, red and black piles. If you Google that, out of this world will be exposed to you instantly. It's not Google proof. And a lot of the tricks that I try to do, at least, are tricks that they're never going to find. And, and you know, I have people challenge me all the time. Oh, you know what? I'm, I'll Google this afterwards, find out how all that stuff works let me know when you do when you find a link send it to me i'd love to know myself like i'm i encourage it because i know they're not going to find anything because none of the stuff i have that i've shown them i've never seen anybody else usually do it or it's in such an old reference or an old book that i don't think anyone really cares about it or thinks about it today so like it's really hard for someone to to watch the show or watch me perform something go back try to
3: google and describe what they saw and then actually get the answer that they're looking for
0: Mm. so you're you I think what you're what you're searching for is to be also unique in that way, right? Like to see magic to make people see magic that they cannot see anywhere else,
1: um not necessarily. I mean, most people never see a live magician in their life,
0: mm. well, but like they just for, never do like for for me, for example, like i I also do gigs like and. It happens so often. Someone came up to me and they described the trick. And they either describe ambitious cards or anniversary walls.
1: Right. And so then what do we take away from that? What's the lesson?
0: And everyone does that.
1: Stop doing those tricks.
0: Mm.
1: You know, those have become public domain in the literal sense of the term. The exactly. public knows about this so much that we've got to do better.
0: But you know what I thought? Like, you know what what would be fun? If you can show someone something and that person goes up to a magician and explains to the magician what happened the magician just goes like no that's impossible that's not you're probably missing And now you've
1: just there. described how i try to do my magic i really do try to like i try to create magic in exactly that way so when someone tells you oh my god this person did this trick for me and they describe it with perfect recall i've seen it happen magicians will tell them exactly that that's impossible you're you're misremembering something that's my favorite when magicians (laughs) try to tell someone their memory was wrong and it's funny because magicians often use that as a technique they're like oh they'll remember it as better than it is you know what I mean like they they, we often think like oh they'll misremember it but that doesn't make the magic better
0: but I'm also wondering is it always all that it
1: does is it sets you up to be a disappointment the next time they see you Mm. because they go oh that's not how I remembered it huh which means now your magic is only good one time they see you a second time the magic is done, is gone and that's also really not good really not good mm. so i think we should we should be striving to do better magic for our audiences certainly and i think that if we've if we have an idea of what it should look like we should try to get as close as humanly possible to it because the next time they see you if they see the same trick again they should have an experience that's similar to the first one because when they come back they usually bring someone with them if it's a layman mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Or imagine you're doing walk-around, like you're doing a a, an event and you know you're mingling amongst people and showing the magic and you perform something that people are just like, Oh my god, this was extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And that person leaves the little group, grabs their friend, and goes, You got to see this, and brings it back and goes, Can you show my friend that?
2: Mm.
1: What do you do? If you if the magic is really good and it's tight and you've like you planned it out properly, you just do it again. And they're just like unbelievable. And the beauty of it also is if they want to see it again they're like that was so good i need someone else to see this too that's a Mm. what a compliment what an incredible compliment but like i don't want to disappoint so i had to make sure (laughs) like if i do like i don't like using gimmicks and stuff if um i don't want to do a gaff trick where there's no variability to the to the to the gaff card so if there's Mm. a trick where it's like one unique playing card that's specially made and i don't know something happens to it and pop something magical happens but it's always the same card that does it I'm not so interested in that because I can't repeat that again for another group of people Mm -hmm. because it's the same card. And they go, Oh, it it was the same one. That's a small detail that they can grasp at. And they're right. If the card doesn't change constantly, then we fall into the trap of the repeatability of the effect. Isn't good enough. It's, it's difficult to do it unless it's a stage, um, not a stage piece, but a, uh, a very special piece. And it's like, you want to do that. You do that one trick, one time, one time per night, like I had this old video of of Michael Skinner and I got it when I was like a teenager. I was like 14, 15, something like that. And it was this guy in uh, in the United States that sent me this VHS tape of him and he's just teaching magic for hours to some, to to another guy. Uh, It was old VHS. It's all grainy and stuff. But I learned a lot of my magic from Michael Skinner on that video. And one of the things in there was he talks about, um, he talks about Steve Wynn and this is, this is Steve Wynn's favorite trick. Steve Wynn owned the the casino, the golden nugget that he was working at. So, and Skinner just tells a story about how every day he goes into the casino and Steve Wynn always finds him, puts a new deck of cards in front of him and goes, Michael, show me my trick. So I just took that as pattern. I'm like, what a great story. So I tell people, you know, I can only do this trick once per night and you'll understand why in a second. And it's just a zero shuffle. That's the whole technique. You pull a brand new deck of cards out, you show that it's brand new. You shuffle it a couple of times and then you, spread, you show that it's still in brand new order. That's the whole trick. Trick. But that's also what Michael would show him. That's <laughs> The truth of the story is so great. And the neat part is if people ask you about the story, I don't have to lie. They're like, how do you know that? Or, and I can be like, well, when I was a teenager, this one magician in the South sent me this video that had this this, this personal video of this guy that was the magician for Steve Wynn. Like, the story continues if they want it to. But it's also a one-off because they know as soon as the deck gets mixed up, I'm like, let's give these guys a really good shuffle. And I told them I can only do this once. There's almost an understanding I cannot do it again. And I'm okay with that because I can't do it again. Not the way that they want me to. They can't remember a brand new deck of cards. that's all mixed up now. Like if it's a mixed up deck, they don't know the order. It has to start in order to end in order. And if I were to shuffle the cards after they were mixed up like that and then have it be the case, it's a different effect. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it's like if there's certain tricks that you can't repeat because they're going to, like, sort of ruin the trick or because it doesn't really make sense, I'm not going to sit there and sort out all the cards to go through it.
3: Um, So because I only do it once, I think people feel that, too. I think that's kind of important. That's just me.
0: I think you're right. And the effect definitely changes because if you would argue, oh, yeah, well, it goes from mixed up to new deck order, then the order is changing, right? It's not staying the same
1: right and then of course at that point i can say like well that's only a trick i usually do once but you know why don't you reach in there why grab a card for me and then they may go into to take a card and i may go into like triumph for example Mm -hmm. which if you think about the effect really is uh, the deck of cards sorts itself it has a very similar feel to it although it's not the same trick Mm -hmm. Uh, or you can say like i i I promise I'd only do that trick once. That's kind of a, that's a one tonight kind of a trick, but I think the trick is rather pretty. I think you'll like this and then go into it. Now here's another trick that he performed for people. That was really beautiful. Like there's a lot of little ways to to dodge the bullet while not dodging the audience Mm -hmm. or giving them something even better because the, the truth is as a trick. It's a neat story. And it is a very, it's a very good way to establish yourself as like, look, I'm actually good at this stuff, but let me show you a little bit right off the bat. Here's a little story. And here's a very quick moment. They're like, Oh my God, how did you do this? Then a couple seconds later, or maybe a few moments later, you have them choose a card, you go into triumph. It's a very similar effect in terms of like how it feels, Mm -hmm. the thing sorting itself. Um, And then the audience gets to have that similar impact again. Or if someone's like, oh my God, if it's a walk around setting or something, or I don't know, someone goes to the bathroom or whatever, who knows? If you're at a dinner party and you're sitting down and someone left and comes back and the host and someone's like, oh my God, this trick was amazing. You got to see this. What do you do? Well, let me show you something very similar. How's that? You guys will recognize this. Like you can also give the audience credit and go into the trick and do it. And then they'll be like, that was amazing. And I'm like, thank you. I think so too. No, that's why I started doing it. Like there's so many things you can do without um, betraying your audience, I suppose. Oh
0: yeah. And it's like, it's also very simple. Like this very much relates to something I learned from you, but also from the Skinner book, which is that there are some presentations which are sort of universal.
1: I learned that from Skinner. I learned, Skinner. I learned that from that Skinner video too, where he talks to. Oh, he really? lo- like he specifically talks about it. He's like, "There's there's all kinds of ways to present magic. You know, you can ask people questions that just have interesting endpoints that don't exist. Like, you know, this is going to sound strange, but there's um we actually have like there's there's actually magic conventions and conferences. There's like where magicians around the world fly into one city, and maybe we take over a hotel or something, and we just all show each other magic but the kind of magic magicians show one another is completely different than the kind of magic that that we show the public do you want to see one of those tricks that magicians just say for other magicians it's such a good lead in like nobody's like no nah, i'm good they're <laughs> like yeah what does that look like like they're curious they really do want to know what that means and mm-hmm. what it looks like and when you show them and then of course the beauty of it show them whatever you want there is no trick Makes every sense. trick is a trick magicians show- so you're already <laughs> off to the best start because you can do whatever you like. It always works out and the audience had no idea. they just feel like it's a bit more special. Now I try to actually do that legitimately in a certain way. Like I would be like, well, here's a trick I don't show often. In fact, I usually just, I usually just show this to other magicians because we kind of find it interesting for different reasons. But do you want to see a trick that's a little bit odd like that? They're always going to say yes. Mm. I'm like, yeah, let's see it. All right. Can you shuffle? You know like you I try to keep the tone of the of the original beginning of the presentation, but you can do anything you want after that. And the audience is in. I'd be in. Definitely.
0: You're you're gonna show someone they already see something they won't see every day.
1: But right? If- and they get to experience it with you and hopefully you're trying to be unique in some way. It doesn't exactly. have to be like as a character or as a way of dress, but cert- certainly as a person and the style maybe the style of magic you're doing or your your choice of pattern or your choice of effect, there's so many things, excuse me, can be unique. Mm. So I think it's really, um, it's neat that you can sit down with an audience and show them something after like an introduction like that to a trick and they're not left unsatisfied. Like they're really happy with the experience. I I find that to be like, it's a very powerful moment to be able to do that for somebody. Mm. And again, it's just like, if I can keep the presentational tone the same along the way, then the audience just feels it be relatively seamless. Even though I had to tie a little knot at the beginning, you know what I mean?
0: um you you i also see like a lot of work you you mentioned and you like to do is like tabled work right so if you if you i also know you get hired to do events like you walk around would you sit down with people mm. at the table
1: i get invited to sit down often yeah mm. yeah i remember i was doing an event with a bunch of magicians um just before the pandemic hit actually and it was um it was for an awards show. Uh, so there was like four or five of us walking around and it was really good fun. And there were great magicians, really, really great magicians. But one of the things that I noticed was like there was this, this they had a, there was sort of a disconnect between the audience and the performers in a way. And I'm just not used to that. So I guess, I, I don't know if it was like a, a presentation it wasn't in canada so like i was a foreigner in another country so i had an accent which is great but uh but i found that people really wanted to hang out like every table was like Do you want to sit down like can we get you a drink they, they were very very hospitable people were very friendly about it i noticed a lot of the other performers weren't getting that invitation like they weren't they weren't doing it and what i noticed was it was the style of magic they were doing they were like they were stepping away from the table so much that they, they put distance between them and the audience they weren't um for, for whatever reason the 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 different tables and audiences just weren't feeling that warmth i guess or they weren't feeling like they wanted that person to come and sit down for whatever reason and these 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 performers were like were pros really pros so i think at the same time the pros were looking to not sit down so their magic was like hit it and quit it you know like boom yep yeah, here's your magic next table and they were trying to get their like all their tables in and i i my approach is it's a little bit different and it's not always what every event planner wants but I try to give the audience what they would like in the moment if they want to meet and hang out and chat and ask questions, of course, I'm going to give them the time because when are they going to have this opportunity again. It's so rare to see a magician for them to ask me to spend time with them. is such a compliment. It's such a personal compliment. I would love to give them the time of day. And then sometimes magicians are like, what were you talking like you were at that table for a long time. I'm like, yeah you were sitting down like what were you talking about and I was like you wouldn't believe me if I told you but the conversations go way off like way off topic they're asking about traveling to Canada or, or like I'm going to Japan next week do you have any advice I'm like absolutely you know keep this 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 in mind if you get to go here make sure you do like it becomes more of a conversation and I think that um I take a lot of my presentational points from stand-up comedy and it's usually the comedian on the very very edge of controversy that i I, I really enjoy watching uh, for for a number of reasons. One is when they always sort of like balance on the knife edge of controversial, they're forced to present things in a way that leaves them um, somewhat bulletproof, I would say. And the evolution of how magic is presented is interesting, but to me, the evolution of how comedy is presented is far more interesting. They analyze it more, they break it down more and two two um, too much, too, um comedians that are in a lot of hot water it seems but who i think are really top of the game are jimmy carr and uh, dave chappelle and i remember seeing an interview with dave chappelle where he kind of going through exactly that the different styles of presenting comedy and back in the day you'd have like the one-liners you know really funny people like joan rivers or rodney dangerfield they're like it didn't matter who you were if you were sitting in that in that audience you were going to laugh like i think joan rivers opening line it, it's 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 such a per there's no fat on the joke at all. Like you can't take a single word out of it. And it's such a funny line. She came out and she was stick thin, like she was very, very thin. First thing, and remember, this is of a time. I mean, this is something to do today, but it's of a time. She'd walk out and be like, Does this tampon make me look fat? I'm like, oh my god. That is such a short joke. Does this tampon? make me look fat that is seven words there is no fat on that joke you can't take away a single word from that that's incredible that's incredible and that was like the era of one-liners you know and this is an insult stuff not like don rickle's insult comedy where you're making fun of people you know she's making fun of herself okay she's bringing out it's, it's i think it's a hilarious joke it's also a time when like, that was such a common thing in the eighties as well. You know, Does this make me look fat? Like that was such a, it's such a cliche line. Mm-hmm. And to bring it out with that particular topic, which is obviously something that would never change your appearance. I just, I love it. I love everything about that joke. It, it always makes me laugh, even just thinking about it. So, but like that was of a time. And then as comedy starts to evolve, you start to see like the Jerry Seinfeld comedy comes in strong in the nineties, especially, when it's like, what's the deal with this? What about that? Like it's very observational, small quip moments. And then that also kind of evolves into, um, we get this sort of this long form story comedy where it's a story that's like, it's not funny for a long time. And then boom, there's a big punchline and it's it's a very long investment for a big payoff. Mm -hmm. But as some comedians measure comedy, they do it in jokes per minute or laughs per minute. And when you have that as your measure, that long form comedy is a big risk. Like it's a big setup. And you you really hope that hits. Cause if it doesn't hit, oh that's a that's a real hard burn. That's a really, a really, really unfortunate death on stage, you know. And then we go into the 80s and go back to the 80s with a guy like Eddie Murphy, who was coming out saying really outlandish, controversial stuff, you know, really breaking down racial barriers about things and saying a lot of things that you could never say on stage today, things that even he acknowledges as stuff that is not appropriate for audiences today. And he even looks back and is like, I, ooh, you know, he was the young man doing it in the eighties and that's what it was. And now I think um, you see guys like Dave Chappelle and Chappelle talks about it. And he, in one interview, I saw him say this and I just thought it was so incredible. He goes, um, you know, like we need to stop talking at our audiences and start talking with them. We're not performing at them, with them. It's a conversation to be had. They're part of what you're doing so you don't have to stand up as if there is a glass wall in front of you and perform at a screen or a camera for the audience to take it in and i i i took a lot away from that personally i was um i think that whoever's at the cutting edge of the highest sort of marker of sorts in comedy to me is the person to look at jimmy carr taught me timing you know that man is a one line he's one liners and his his comedy is super offensive super offensive that's why I think it's so important because he has to handle everything else with such white blood. He's so delicate about it. Mm. He's such a gentleman saying such lewd things. How do you get away with it? And he'll say something, then pause for a moment. But that's blah, blah, blah. and then he'll say the thing. And his his pregnant pauses between you know his things are just so incredible. They're so incredible. It really taught me how to make everything sound interesting. You know, if you pause for just the right moment then talk a little bit more you can you can get so much more out of out of a little bit of wordplay and i think with magic we don't we don't um we don't look at it so much but um but, but i think it's super important i think that that is when chappelle sits down he goes oh, it's about a conversation being had and if you watch chappelle's comedy you'll see him go into it he'll be like you know i knew a guy from school that did this never in my life have i ever however you know and then he'll come up with, one time and you're like and now you with him but you really feel like you're just like you're sitting down and having a conversation with this Mm man and he's so it just feels so real and the topics he's talking about matter to you you know like it feels so much more personal when the conversation is with someone and not at someone Mm -hmm. which is a funny thing to say when I'm like very much like talking at you right now (laughs) I do appreciate the irony of this (laughs) but this is a different style of performance and I think that that if you if you look at Um, if you look at some comedies like top people you can a lot more than you possibly could imagine things like what makes people laugh you know what gives you permission to make people laugh what's too far like Jimmy Carr says some stuff that's just outlandish really outlandish like I can't I can't think of a single like Jimmy Carr joke that I can say because they're that offensive all the time and there's a handful of them but I'm like it's even then I'm like no can't say that it's just you can't do it and I find that if you if you study stand-up comedy and stand-up comedians and which ones are really getting like a lot of attention and that people really love, those people do more grinding and do more shows and more performance than I think any other artists I can think of in the world. So their insight, and all they have is a microphone usually, a mic, a voice, and an audience. That's minimalism at its finest. If all you have is what you say, I now need to pay attention not just to what you say, how you say it, when you say it, why you say it, you know, all those things now become very, very important to me. Mm. And for for someone like Chappelle, when he comes out and he's sitting down with an interview, again, I can never find this interview. Maybe it was in a dream. I don't think it is. I'm sure I saw it. And, you know, he's like smoking a cigarette in the studio, which he's not allowed to do, but he's going to get fined $10,000. But guess what? He's Dave Chappelle. He doesn't care. He's like, yeah, here's your 10 grand. Do you want the interview or not? And they're like, yeah, we'll pay the fine. So he's just sitting there smoking a cigarette, talking to somebody where he's not supposed to be. And the conversation he has with them is just so, it feels so real. It feels real. Mm-hmm. Like you, you just, you feel when they're not bullshitting you. You feel yeah. when, you're, when your performer is with you, you know? Mm-hmm. After that gig that I mentioned, when we were sort of walking around and showing stuff to people, we were all going back to the green room. And as we were, the organizer of the event and a few of the other people that were helping asked if I would do some magic for them. And of course I was like, I would, I would love to, of course I would love to. I went, I showed them some beautiful classics and one of the magicians was like, is it okay if I sit and watch? I'm like, of course, please be my guest. No one ever asks me that. You know, no one ever asks, hey, can I sit and watch? And if they ask, usually the answer is yes, unless it's very specifically no for some reason. And I just showed them the prettiest stuff I think I could possibly do for them. Just beautiful, beautiful magic. I think it's beautiful, at least, very classic, sleight of hand. And man, there were tears in their eyes. Like it was such a special moment for everyone there, for for the organizers and even for the magician because afterwards I could see their face. They were just like a little bit startled by it. Like, okay, okay. I think that like we've been told and taught one thing and then once we see it or experience it in a real way, we realize how wrong certain things are. I personally take very little away from other magicians. I don't want to have that overlap or that crossover. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that there's a lot to learn from other like that gentleman that made me giddy. I'm not gonna be able to do anything in his show and I don't want to do anything in his show. I'm just so glad that there's someone that exists that's doing it. So when I get to perform sort of my style of magic for these people and they're having such an incredible time with it, they really are loving it. You know, one of the funny things that they see is that afterwards a lot of people ask for hugs. They wanna give me a hug after they see magic and I don't, I don't 100% understand it. I kind of do like they, they're feeling something so they, they wanna feel close. You know, there's a certain feeling of closeness. But I got to tell you, man, that's 100% Dave Chappelle.
2: Mm.
1: It's 100% Dave Chappelle teaching me in so many words or through whatever weird dream I had, which, again, I don't think it was a dream. <laughs> but to that little interview or or by, by watching his comedy Please, and seeing how he interacts with dream. them. <laughs> maybe it's a dream. But just just him talking about, like, the conversation with the audience. You know, with them, not at them, with them. Like, let them interject. If someone interrupts, it doesn't ruin the show. I'm not going to put them down as a heckler. I'm going to encourage the conversation because it's, it, they don't want to feel like they're just sitting in a chair all the time and not being part of it. Some people do, and that's okay. But it's like being giving the audience the, the impression or the feeling that they could talk to you about anything at any moment, I think is so important. And I think as magicians, we're really, really, we're really bad at it. Oh, yeah. We're really bad at letting the audience be part of the show.
0: But one thing that should be stressed is like <clears throat> what you're what you're saying is you are with the audience. You sit down with them and it's us.
1: Sometimes, yeah.
0: And it's not necessary. But they invite
1: me to sit down. They invite me to sit down. Exactly. That's, that's a really important detail is that they ask me to sit down. And one of the things that I think is important is they never think I'm starting a script. Hmm. It's never like, okay, just hold on a second. Are you ready? Here we go. Okay disappears it's here now now it's gone now it's over here now in my pocket what's this it's your, and then it's and then, well, well, that's gone <laughs> back where it's, it came like i don't do so that it isn't like it it's um yeah it's genuine but it's like you didn't put a quarter in the machine
0: yeah there's no there's no shift in personality
1: they know if even if it's even if it is scripted because i mean my magic is usually quite scripted but it doesn't feel scripted i hope um mm. or i'm very happy to break the script like, I'm not sitting here going, like, I got to say this, then this, then this. Like, I enjoy it when the audience wants to play with me.
0: But I've had I've like... had
1: people get up on stage afterwards and or, like, someone stand up and be like, there's an extra card I know there is. And they start, like, patting me down. And let's say I actually do have a card palmed. I will let them find it eventually just for the game, just to play with them. I know they're just having fun. They're not trying to ruin anything. We're just playing. And I get that. I'm doing palm-to-palm transfers and stuff, and it teaches me so much in the moment. And what's really sacrificed maybe one person in the world can say this one time this magician came over and i patted him down and found a card what a weird story to tell someone but in the moment (laughs) we're just having fun and i'm very much a guest with them i'm not an entertainer that's there to entertain them which i am of course but like you can break through that a little bit and they just want you to be like part of their crew they want to hang out with you you know like i love it when people come up to me and they just they just grab your arm it's it's like it's 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 a it's the funniest thing they always or they just they just come and they they link their arm with you and they just start walking you somewhere (laughs) like a puppy and i'm like where are we going and it isn't like i don't stop them i'm always like i'm so sorry i don't know what's happening but i will be right back i think like i never break the moment for someone to make someone else look bad or to embarrass someone i'm just gonna go with it see what happens and usually they're like this is my friend. Can you please do something for them? I'm like, oh, of course, of course. But they don't tell you that sometimes, and I love that. Like, I love the fact that I can be a variable, not a con- like, not a constant. It isn't like you push the button and then the trick pops out. You know, it's like, yeah. You know, of Hi, hello. Well, Lovely to meet you. You know, like you just roll with it. Mm. Or like one of my favorite phrases, and it's kind of like a bit of a life thing. Sometimes you gotta let some shit fly. You know what I mean? Just yeah, I'll let some shit fly. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's very different than a big formal performance. So if I'm doing a show, I'm seated before an audience and someone starts trying to frisk me, I'm like, well, excuse me, madam. You know, like that becomes a whole different thing. Sir, that is not part of the show. Like there's moments like that. But again, we can joke a little bit without bringing someone down. We can play without bringing someone down. Mm. And and magic, can, that's the other thing. People have this really interesting conception that all my magic is very serious. It's always like very historical and very old. And and sometimes it is, but I'm a lot of fun with my audience. Mm. I love to joke with them and tease and play a little bit. You know what I mean? Like I'll roll with them. I I will absolutely go down that path with them. And we'll we'll, we'll play. We can play. We forgot that sometimes. It's fun to play with your audience. It's fun for them to like feel like they're part of it. And it's it's more than just I'm watching a guy do trips, which is so often the case, you know? They shouldn't feel they shouldn't feel squelched. I would say they shouldn't feel like their their voice doesn't matter or that they need to be quiet. I want them to be ready to speak but have nothing to say yet. Mm-hmm. You know, or it's like like I don't like when people clap. I don't like when people give me rounds of applause, which is sort of funny. So for some tricks, I don't. I, I build the timing into it where there isn't time for it. I don't let you clap. I just keep going. I I got it. I've got things to do. You know, like, and it's funny to put it that way. But that's always stage piece. Like if I do the billiard balls, I give them a moment where there's a moment where I'll show them the thing. It's beautiful. And then they clap. It's like a, it's a polite applause moment. But then there's other moments when I know they want to, and I just don't wait for it. It just blitz right through it. And some people go, oh, well, you stepped on the laugh or you stepped on the applause. You know, like you cut it off too soon. And I'm like, no, that is true. But I did it because I'm actually trying to build it up. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm I'm like I'm containing those, those applause because I want the magic to be more important than them putting their hands together. Yeah, it's also in a hopefully in a subtle way telling them, you don't have to clap.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm good. I got this. I got to do this no matter what, and I I really enjoyed this. The applause changes nothing. I don't say that to anybody, but that's what my mental sort of idea is.
2: Mm-hmm. Does that so make sense?
0: And also, yeah, yeah, because we also like educate our audiences sometimes in some way to applaud, like with building in these applause cues but certain have tricks have them if honest, you do like
2: you
1: know? right like i mean if you do a trick and then afterwards you put your hands apart and you're kind of like well what do you think i mean that's what you're saying right
2: mm.
1: they'll they'll clap for you you know um in uh, i think it's magic and showmanship by henning nelms it's not a book that everyone loves a lot of people hate that book but in that book he's got some really neat advice some things are about like how tall you are great i, I think it's a great book mm. not everything in it is great but i do find it to be a very very good book and part of it is like, where are you higher than the audience? Are you taller than the audience? Are you standing? Like there's so many ways to take an applause cue or, or a pose. Even a smile is like, is it enough to make them sort of clap? Or if, you know, if you kind of like look at your feet a little bit or you're a little bit nervous about it and you're just like, no, thank you very much. They, they will give you love. The audience wants to, go, they want to love you. Mm. They want to love you. They want to love your magic. And sometimes they don't know how, you know? giving them permission to not clap is an interesting one to me i think often we chase the applause because we want to make sure that the booking agent hears it they want they want to hear that the show was good but i would much rather have an audience of stunned silence you know and then have them talk about it in the office for the next three months
0: or we become junkies to the dopamine that gets released once we hear people it feels really good
1: doesn't it oh yeah it feels really good but if you learn to temper that, if you learn to, like, you know, if your audience is quiet, you're either the best magician in the world or the worst magician in the world, and you're not going to know for a little while. But, but hopefully,
0: there's a difference to that, though.
1: It's a very different goal. I think that, you know, we, we've...
0: No, but I mean between those two feelings also, because I've had tricks where people are just staring. Like, of mm-hmm. course, I've done shit, and people are just looking at it, and they go, like... They're sort of they're they're gone you know with their thoughts so you can see it in their eyes zoomed out you know <sighs> okay i lost them. this was shit but there are also times when they're just like staring just blank staring and they're very conscious like you still see them there their consciousness is still there mm-hmm. but they just don't know how to respond like their mind just blanks out like they just stop thinking there's nothing <laughs> they can do and just gonna.
1: that's my favorite reaction i like i i talk about this sometimes i'm like well the natural reaction to magic is not is not this mm-hmm. It's this. If you see something that's really, and not all magic is supposed to be that way. Like Ross Bertram had a really interesting interview in the back of his book, Birch one sleight of hand. Mm. And one of the things he mentioned is like, not every trick can be a miracle. you got to let them breathe. They have to relax yeah, a little right. bit. If you hit them with miracle, 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 they will get exhausted very quickly. Mm. They're overwhelmed. They're always at, like at a peak. It never comes down. There's no ebb and flow. There's no highs and lows. And that lack of contrast, although you may think I, I'm doing all my A material, is the best stuff in the world. Yes, but let the relax a little in between. Same with comedy. Mm-hmm. If it's laugh, 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 you're gonna get sore. You are laugh so hard the back of your head hurts? There's those muscles back there because you're smiling too much, you know, or like your cheeks hurt, stuff like that. Same thing, it's a good feeling in a way, but it's also mildly unpleasant sometimes. <laughs> so like give it a little break you know let it build a little bit then let it hit the crescendo like let it get high again and then come back down you know there's
3: there's lots of ebb and flow that we can play with
0: do you have any way to differentiate um a miracle from a
3: nice trick mm, that's a good question I think that there's a lot of factors that go into making a miracle happen. And for me
1: personally, I find that everything has to be just right. Um, the music should match if there's music. The The trick usually tells you a lot about what it needs. So if if I need it to be a miracle, sometimes I have to have music that's going to make it feel like a miracle because it sets the mood so well. If we're talking like a more stage, then I can control music. The rarity of an effect, the scarcity of the effect, I think is very important. So like, it needs to be Google proof. They can't go out afterwards and Google it and find out how it was done. which usually means it can't be something that's easily purchased or that's able to be found online for purchase. It can't be something you usually bought. Um, these, aren't, these aren't definitive truths. These are just like some general observations. Uh, then I would say that, you know, if you, when Molini produced a block of ice, It was a block of ice. It was a big square, presumably. I wasn't there, so, (laughs) but presumably it's a big chunk of ice, you know? If you do that once, it's a miracle. But if you do that 12 times, it's not. It's commonplace. You just made it not a miracle because of it. It actually becomes an inconvenience because everyone's got this block of ice that's melting all over the place, and you've got a whole bunch of them somehow. So I think that often a miracle is like the right time, the right place, the right trick. I mean, you can line those all up and you start to get more in tune with it. You start to realize when you can, Mm -hmm. but it's also important to build up a trick just enough for them to realize it's a miracle. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: You don't have to push it over the top so much. Like I've seen many people try to make any card at any number a miracle. And the spectator is just like, so? I'm not even joking. That was the actual reaction to the trick. They nailed it. Like miracle class nailed it. I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh my God, he got this. Like. Let's see this go. Let's see this happen. And the, so, <laughs> Shit. and they built it up. They did all the things you were supposed to do. And that was the reaction. And it's like, Oh, not all miracles are inherently miracles. You know, mm. the, the, the buildup to it sometimes is more important than the trick. And I don't follow that personally. I try not to, I try not to make that part of my magic philosophy. I think that the magic has to be good enough to be its a miracle on its own. And then like, Jim Steinmeier's written some really beautiful books and some really good ones. And there's, um, there's, there's, one I love called like, you know, let me give you some terrible advice or some really awful advice. And it's really great advice, of course. And then there's another one um, called the secret nobody tells you. And, um, we were just talking about this a moment ago. I don't think it's available anymore, which is really unfortunate. If you can find a copy online, certainly buy it because the advice that Jim gives in there is mind-blowingly good, mind-blowing. And, You're going to be like you're probably going to go. This isn't mind blowing. This is very common. I'm going. Okay, you say that, but then show me somewhere else where that's in print. Show me where that's actually told. And one of the really great ones is not all tricks are created equal. Don't do lousy material. And I take that to being magic can be on a scale of one to ten, a one or a ten before we even start working on presentation, before we even step through like the even just reading the, the effect description. If you can actually match the description, as we know that you can't always do. But if the effect description is doable, you can often very quickly see, like, I, you can see how it could be a miracle. You know what I mean? Mm. Like I end my I end my stage shows and my stand up shows, or I even do this sometimes in walk around, um, with, uh, with Thurston's five card vanish and reproduction,
2: mm.
1: which is crazy to people. If you hear that, you're like, what? You do card manipulation for somebody? Yes, and they cry and they clap. And they love, and they want hugs, and it's like it's the most beautiful thing I can do, you know. Sometimes at the end of the show, I'm in tears. People want to talk about it. I've had people come back. I had someone see the show five times in a row. They just they just wanted to watch it again and again. They just want to see that one trick at the end. I never read that trick and thought it was a miracle at first. Never, never in my I was like, that's cool, that's a neat idea. I remember seeing the Jeff McBride VHS tapes way back when I was a child and watching him make the five cards vanish and reappear. And I was like, that's neat. And I worked really, really hard on it. Then I found somebody else did it and somebody else did it. And then I kind of took it and spun it and worked on it. And, and it just became such a beautiful visual piece of magic. And it had such an incredible story with it. And the music I picked for it was just so, so particular that when it all came together, it, it was much greater than the sum of its parts. If each part of that was like a five or a six or a seven or whatever, all together it became a twelve somehow. Mm-hmm. Not always. I'm not always perfect with it. It's a really difficult trick to do, and it's a lot of sleight of hand, and it's quite angry sometimes. Like it's it's challenging. But I don't know any other trick that I do in my work that really hits people the same way. That's it. Always consistently becomes a miracle, and that's a trick I do in every show. So even going back to like the one time thing, to create a miracle, um, it's kind of like the miracle is the moment. Mm-hmm. The miracle is the moment so the I miracle remember. is literally what they're going to walk away and talk about I not necessarily the effect yeah pardon me
0: i remember in amsterdam you did uh the 505 something very similar but you were that's I it think, that's exactly I think, it i think you were supposed to end that whole set with the card fountain
3: oh that sounds right
0: and then the card fountain didn't work because the glass was just a bit too narrow and it was just like here's the, like, oh. but what you did like i will always remember because always in magic books they said like, yeah but what if this goes wrong what if you fuck up and then of course like if magicians they say do a classic you, but what if i miss and then they say you don't miss you know like max name says you don't miss because you're a professional so <laughs>
1: well my act is what i would call a crash and burn act
0: yeah but that's you can't repair
1: things when it goes wrong when something goes wrong it's it's done that trick is done you cannot fix it you're not going to make exactly. it better so what do you do you own the moment and you perform a miracle afterwards you own the moment and you do something you just keep it moving you know but i I I don't this
0: is you really set the ground because you were like in that moment it screwed up you just sort of started to romantically explain to the whole audience like what would have happened if it would have worked but sadly it didn't and then they were not like boo bad magician didn't work fuck you but they were like oh wow that would have been amazing to see what else can you do and then you showed them 505 and then people were basically just like stunned in silence like there was this aura sort of over the room like people didn't really want to move
3: it's a weird moment
1: magicians don't know how to handle it it's like i don't like doing it around a lot of magicians because they don't know what it is usually and they usually think negatively of it same thing with like event organizers and planners and stuff. It's like if they don't really understand what's happening in the moment, they don't quite get it until it's too late. They don't realize what happens until they hear back from the audience, which is like in a week. You know, who was that guy? What was that? You know, they, that was incredible. That magician was, they get commentary, but it takes a little while. You know, it, I mean, every once in a while I get an email from a CEO or something like three months after an event and they're like, they're still talking about the Christmas party. And I'm like, this is the greatest compliment ever. You know, like that, that's the best, that's what you want. And it's its usually because of a, a, a show or a performance where five zero five is in it. If the show doesn't go perfectly, which happens all the time, stuff goes wrong. Things don't always work out flawlessly. That's okay. I'm not scared of that. I'm not even worried that so much. I try to like limit that and minimize it, but there's only so much I can do. And with the card fountain, which is a beautiful, beautiful trick, um, the, the card fountain was giving me trouble for a little while. And it's like, I didn't quite know how to fix it perfectly. So I got to get it home and work on it and and tweak it and make sure it's just right. Maybe a piece here or something there. And then now it's much better than it was, you know, but like I've got to go through all that stuff. Mm. and then once I do, and now it's like working perfectly and you know, at a distance perhaps, or it's doing all the things it's supposed to, I get to add that one more cherry on top. You know what I mean? Mm. So like, I'm not afraid to, I'm not afraid to fail. And I think that we've magic has become so practical that there's no magic anymore. Magic isn't practical. It's supposed to be impossible. What what happened to that? What happened to that? And for me, like that's just a personal little thing. Like I I try to chase some stuff that people don't chase. You know, no one's doing a card fountain. Not the way that I'm doing it, at least. Mm. Mine is just a glass on the table. And the deck of cards goes in it, and every card goes flying out except for the three cards that were selected. And it's a clear glass. And then after you pick them out, that's your card, your card, and your card. You take a little bow. And then I usually do an encore after that because it's such a strong trick you guys want to see one more they always say yes of course they're going to say yes if you just made cards fountain out of there you're offering people one more trick what are they going to say Nah, i'm cool (laughs) all right i mean if that's the case no problem that's okay too but most of the time i'd say like you know 99 999 times out of a thousand they're going to want to see one more people aren't standing up and walking out you know (laughs) so what do you do you've got one more for them you do have that one amazing trick you hold back so when you do walk out on stage and you're like okay In fact, I do, like I said, five zero five. It's five playing cards. I will grab them from the table because the fountain throws them everywhere. They're on the floor and stuff. They're in front of me. Like they're all over the place and it sprays out both directions. Like it really looks pretty when it works. Um, But some cards are left on the table. So I just grab a handful of cards and then I do the trick with it. And when you do that trick for people right afterwards, it's still like, oh my God. And it's from the cards that we just made a mess with so that the objects feel so normal to them. There is no like, is that a thing? Is that not a thing? Wait, what about the, like they just saw them flying around in the air. Mm. Then I'm just grabbing some cards casually to do it. Like it it lends itself to it. The story doesn't end there. Do you want to see one more? It looks like I'm done. I just made a big mess on stage. It looks like I'm done. Do you want to see one more? Grab the cards. I step towards the front of the stage to get away from the mess so I don't slip on them. And uh, and I try to be mindful if there's cards that have like fallen off or something. I always try to like, kick them back a little bit so that no one trips on them. Uh, safety with with the trick that puts cards on the floor, especially like a wood floor or a hard surface or even a carpet, like anything. Cards are super dangerous when they're on the floor like that. So I try to clear that out a little bit and then I take this five random cards and do the trick. And it couldn't feel more organic in the moment for them. You know what I mean? It it does create a really special moment for the audience and it does leave them sort of a bit jaw dropped. I I really love that feeling. Really love that feeling Um, for the audience. You know, I, I love that they get to feel that. I love the fact that they're left stunned and silent in that moment. It, 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 stunned silence to me is my, is my standing ovation. Like that's
0: yes. what I would
3: prefer to receive.
0: Mm. And it's something magicians are so afraid of.
3: Well, you know, Oprah Winfrey sort of finished her,
1: her, her show, like her formal show. She would interview a lot of people. And I think in one of the last ones I remember, or maybe it was like a, an interview with her afterwards with somebody. I can't peg exactly where this came from. I can't Did quite you put a pin in it in this one
0: but... as well. Pardon me. No, this wasn't a dream.
1: Okay, (laughs) I'm I'm sure I didn't dream the Chappelle one either. It's just too vivid. Like why I I just came to that conclusion.
0: One day, meet Dave Chappelle, and you go like, Dave, you changed my life. And he goes like, That interview never happened.
1: Dude, everyone's got a story about how Chappelle changed their life. That's the incredible thing about Dave Chappelle, right? But um, when um, like yeah, so the the whole the whole thing with Oprah though was she said um. Do you know what every single person says after an interview, mm. no matter what? Whether it's a billionaire or whether it's, you know, a teenager that's something amazing or whether it's some controversial figure or whatever. You know what they all said after the interview?
3: Mm. Cameras turn off, they lean in. Was that okay? Every single person
1: think of who Oprah gets on that show or got on the show way back in the day. And if you're not familiar with Oprah Winfrey's interviews, please go and Google it because you will find extraordinary moments in history, especially in like, I think the, the predominantly the 90s. Um, but Oprah was interviewing everybody and she was going to different towns and things and putting her show on there. It was a talk show. People would come on. She'd have controversial opinions. Like she did some really wild stuff. It's really worth looking at her life just the fact that every single person whether it was the most famous celebrity in the world or a world class scientist or you know the the girl next door or the dad next whatever like you pick your person the fact that they were coming out and all they wanted to know was was i okay was that okay tells me everything i need to know about applause we we so desperately need that acceptance like was was that okay mm. i still have those same questions and i still ask that to myself after a show regardless of the reaction that i get but I think it's really easy to digest a standing ovation or a round of applause and go, that was okay, they were clapping. It's comfortable, you know? It's like a warm hug. It's like a blanket. Bless you, sir.
0: Thank you.
1: Um, and for that reason, I think that, you know, being comfortable with it, you know, maybe not being okay, will allow you to, put your ba- like your boundaries, the boundaries of your magic. It'll let you go further than you expected to. And it'll let you do things that you didn't imagine you would normally do. Just because you have to forget Was that okay? Yeah, yeah, it's gonna be okay no matter what. Yes, of course it's okay. It may not be your best. It maybe maybe it may be your worst, but you know what? It's going to be okay. And maybe this one wasn't perfect, but that just means next time you know what to improve. Like it's such a positive to take something and go. Was that okay? Yeah, it was. It was okay. It's okay for it to be okay. I guess is a funny way to put it. Mm. Does that make sense? I know it's a weird way to put it, but
0: makes sense
1: yeah right like just that idea is that okay Mm. it's so interesting to me Mm. so because that's what everyone is asking after they do a show or a performance it's not a big surprise or a secret or, or a shock that people want um people want that round of applause you know they want that standing ovation it's the only way as a magician or performer that you really truly know instantaneously that it was okay i think that sometimes we are a bit misaligned in how we get them like we we sometimes goad the audience or almost trick the audience into giving us one
2: yeah
0: but and always, that's a bit upsetting to me truthful though because you can always also condition an audience just to applaud at certain cues or certain moments
1: right but like we're not doing that for them we're doing that for us oh yeah you know what i mean like we we really want that round of applause because we want the audience to to exactly. make us feel good in a moment you know so making them clap doesn't make the magic better i think that's a really important fact like making them the audience clap does not make magic better for them at all okay
0: Okay. so then a lot of people like if we look at this and we know it to be true have the standard that applause equals good magic right like that
3: you don't know that
0: well in some way I, i guess a lot of people that's at least for for me when i was younger and still a bit guilty is that's that's how i measure it you know like People like this, they give this. They give X reaction, I want reaction X, this means magic is good. Mm-hmm. But that also means, like you say, we don't know that, and you say oh, it's just something for us. How would you measure whether something is good or not?
3: You'll hear about it afterwards. Mm. But more importantly, it depends on your personal goals.
2: Mm.
1: It, you can measure things on, a, on many different levels. One of them could be like, how
3: successful was it? Well, how do you define success? If you're defining success by how much money you made off of something, or it's a financial thing, then we've got a very specific approach. Mm. Right?
1: If it's a very commercial show, and the magic is maybe like, maybe a six or a seven out of 10. Mm. But a lot of people like that magic. Maybe it's very commercial, but it's not the greatest you could be. But also consider this success is only defined by your parameters. You get to decide what's successful. A lot of people would go, well, I'm the most magician in the city. Therefore I'm the most successful. And that's okay. That's your personal measure. That's your personal, like, you know, your there's no problem with that. It just all depends on how you want to measure your success. What do you define as great or special or important or like what's, what's most important to you? Mm-hmm. There's no wrong answer. I will probably have a different answer. than than someone else will. I would hope we have different answers. Maybe our answers are identical. That's okay too. There's no negative in that. It's just deciding what you want. I want my audiences to feel things and I want my audiences to love magic. And I want my audiences to experience um, typical feelings or emotions that you don't typically experience in a magic show. You know, like I, I often talk about like, I want my audience to cry, but that's not really true. What I really mean is I want them to feel emotions. I want them to feel something. Mm. I want them to to like, in the same way we watch a movie and we cry at someone dying, but they didn't actually die. We know the actor's alive. We saw him another movie yesterday where he was an ice cream truck driver or something. But that doesn't mean that they can't feel something. It doesn't mean that we can't tell them a story or take them on a journey. In fact, I think it's the opposite. I think as magicians, we we really limit ourselves in what we we were able to do with an audience. You know what I mean? I don't mean like bringing them up on stage and putting them in a box or something. I mean like we really limit ourselves in terms of like what path we're willing to take them down, and how much we're willing to give them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, we we often hold back on personal stuff. We don't tell people about ourselves so much in our work, and I think a lot of the time we come out smiling a little too much. We're just so ready to not be a real person. Like we're so plastic in it about it. it we come so out. With, awesome. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Hey are you ready to have some fun? Like, and that's okay. That, that is that's a style. And that's a goal. If that's your goal, that's okay. That's not like a negative. I just feel like there's so much more we could do, yet it seems that so many of us are falling into the same bucket. We're all doing similar things. And there's so many other things that are available to us. So many different tools and techniques in theater or in enter, in presentation in general. And if we just put, a, I think, oh, just, just a little bit more, just a little bit more into it. I, I think mean, that audiences would really react to that well.
0: I can't even do that. Because if I would go, eh, like i used to when i was younger a bit but now there's this voice that's like you're not like that stop doing that you don't think that you don't you don't they want
1: to read the audience desperately wants to meet you
2: Mm.
1: and they want you to be a real human being so act like a real human being it's just one of the funniest pieces of advice i sometimes give magicians which is like just be a normal human being (laughs) it's it's a funny thing but like i'll give you a silly example right
0: so shane normal?
1: What is normal, and that's exactly it. That's what makes it such an interesting thing. The question is, what is normal? I'll tell you what's not normal: taking a coin at the fingertips like this, and putting it in a very open hand. No one puts coins here because this is how we hold things. Just act like a normal human being. If you take a coin and put it here and do a transfer of sorts, you can do the move, and it may look visually correct or visually stunning, but that's not how anyone handles anything. Because no one, no one stretches their fingers so far that you feel tension in the tendons. Mm -hmm. when you hold your hand like this and then go and do a move you're really doing i'm doing a really bad retention there but if you do that like what you're really doing is you're saying catch me if you can watch i'm going to challenge you look my hands are empty and that's without saying a single word Mm -hmm. no one holds stuff like this no one does that no one no one actually does this if you were to pick up something and put it in your hand it would be much more casual you pick up a thing you potentially have it and you just put it somewhere in fact, if it was round, or if it was more than one thing, you'd actually tip it from one hand to the other. If you had a handful of stuff, change or coins, you'd drop a bunch of them from one hand to the other. We've forgotten how to be normal because we've read all these books that told us what to do to create magic. And we forgot that maybe they're wrong. Maybe they're wrong. This isn't the 1980s, you know, when a lot of this like really flashy stuff was coming out. To know the history of magic and to recognize the patterns and trends throughout the decades, you very quickly realize like where we were and where we are. So like, for example, and I could be 100% wrong about this particular point, okay? But I, I, I think it's important to make. I think for the first time in history, roughly, audiences, we've brought magic to the point where audiences are willing to believe that magic is real. It looks real. Not all the time, but sometimes it looks real. We can make it look so good that people will ask you, is magic real? Like, that's the question that's that's very recent to be coming up so so frequently for me. The last like five, 10 years, I should say. We're in a completely different era. Every decade, things really shift change. And the fact that we're at the point where people believe that it's real is extraordinary because we always talk about, oh, well, back in the 1900s, people just believed it was real. Or they, they weren't so smart back then. They didn't know, or, or the lighting was really bad back then. We have all these excuses for why it wasn't the way that was like, you know, back when, but, but today we've really brought magic to a new level of presentation of technical slight of hand ability. Like close up magic is very young compared to stage magic in terms of documentation and evolution. And we're now getting some of these things to the point of naturalness where people are like mind boggled by it. There's such beautiful notions. Vernon truly changed everything with the with the concepts of naturalness, even though that was an idea from the 1890s, for Dr. James Elliott. Be natural is not Vernon. It's Dr. Elliott. That's like early 1900s, late 1800s. Eight, yeah, I think 1890s, early 1900s. But now we're finally embracing it. Like the, the suit finally fits, you know? Mm-hmm. And it fits just right. We start doing stuff for people and they love it. We're seeing people rock, their world's completely changed in the best ways because we're starting to take it not
3: more seriously, but like, I don't know how to describe it. Um, (sighs) Magic has become kind enough
1: or good enough for people to start believing in it. Mm. Magicians are just catching up with the fact that audiences don't want to laugh at magic tricks. Magicians are such cliches that comedy shows make fun of the way that we hold things and handle things. And like, oh, look this right—it's oh, we're always holding stuff with two fingers and our other fingers out, and like looking at it awkwardly. Like that is a common mockery in pop culture. And today we've kind of like we an opportunity to not do that. Like the world has shown us what they don't want anymore. In fact, you know what my favorite one is? I love watching TikTok videos, and uh, not all the time, obviously, but. Audiences are so insulted by how bad magic is that they're just revealing tricks that they can buy online that YouTube and TikTok magicians have already bought online. And I hate to use this specific one, but it's probably the best example. The card to watch, mm-hmm. you have a playing card, then boom, it just turns into a watch. It's visually stunning. It looks spectacular. Mm-hmm. The problem is you can buy it online for $40 or whatever. So when someone on TikTok or YouTube or something puts that out there and is like, watch, boom, Watch get it when it's a gag a little bit but other tiktokers and youtubers are desperately looking for content we're in the we're in the age of content content is king any content mediocre content weak content doesn't matter you got to feed the beast so people are trying to churn it out so hey if i can go spend 50 bucks or 100 bucks and buy a thing and it's going to give me five or ten minutes on my tiktok channel or whatever you know my personal tv show Mm -hmm. and then that's going to produce a bit of money for me that's that's greater than the amount i spent on it I'm good. Other TikTokers are buying these things just to make fun of magicians. to go like, boom, changes to a watch. And they just turn it to the side to show you how it works. <laughs> and they're like, that's it. That's all it is. That's dangerous, man. Like, that's very dangerous for magic. Mm. It's what, I mean, I've always heard it called pull string magic. You pull a string and magic happens. The magician does not need to be there.
0: But it's sort of a trend also in a lot of magic you see on social media, right?
1: Yeah, it's like everyone's stuff. desperate for the views. Everyone's desperate to get fame is the new currency. That's what we've learned from the Kardashians. Fame is the new currency. If you're famous, you can you can use it as payment. You know, people are. I'm mm. like, oh, it's great exposure. Well, it's gonna shock you if you pay me. Same exposure. You know. People are taking that fame idea, the idea of getting a little bit of something, and they're blowing it out of proportion and they're making it like that's the goal. For me, fame is not the goal. I don't want to be famous. I've never wanted to be famous. That's never, and I'm not saying that I would be or that if you know that I have the potential to be at all. I, I don't I don't know if that's the case at all. It's just not a goal of mine. And to see that it's now become like the only thing that matters. If you want to get your own TV show or something, and you have a YouTube channel with a lot of views, you'll get a TV show. That's crazy to me it's crazy to me Mm. so but at the same time we're now in this world where self-production is the game build your following and then we'll support you that's kind of the big media approach for a lot of things not for everything not for everything Mm. but generally speaking that is the way that it works compared to how it used to be Mm. where they would try to find talent you know unrealized unrecognized perhaps they try to refine it and then bring you things but um I think it's important to have goals. And I think it's important to chase those goals. I think it's important to know what those goals are and what those goals come with. Mm. I I don't think extraordinary wealth and fame do very good things for people. I've never seen it do great things for people. Mm. I've seen a lot of lives fall
3: apart because of it. Mm. I've seen a lot of drama and controversy come with it. Yeah,
1: magic's a a wonderful art that can do a lot of things. Do you want a really interesting education? And it's a really short one too. Before Ricky J passed, I mean, he wrote this incredible review of this book called Fooling Houdini. And the book is garbage. Like, don't even waste your time. But more importantly, read the review. Because Ricky comes out and writes a review about It's scathing. And he just, like, breaks down all the bullshit in the book. So, like, you know, this guy went to the Magic Olympics. He's like, no, he didn't. He went to an amateur magician's convention where people are teaching magic, there's a room you can buy magic tricks in. This is not to be compared with the Olympic Village and the level that world-class Olympians, you know, work towards doing things that have never been done before at an extraordinary level. Now, obviously I'm paraphrasing, but the sentiment is there, you know? And Ricky's point is absolutely right. But he talks about things like magic is a very strong art or, or magic is a very powerful art that can support a very weak performer. And he's right. And he talks about how like, you know, just because you see a trick, done by one person that doesn't mean that that person invented that trick there's usually a, a like five or six or seven people someone may have invented the idea and then someone else invented the method and someone else you know did the presentation for it and someone else refined the handling and this last person maybe put a brushstroke on it to put it in front of an audience and it's important to recognize there's many more people involved in the making of it so flipping all the way back to that whole idea of being a normal human being and you know creating content and fame and it's important to recognize that magic is not owned by one person. Mm. And right now, I think we're seeing a lot of people exploiting it as if it is. And yeah, well, I'm yeah. not, I'm not here to judge or criticize people on that particular um, mm. point, you know, to each their own. However, I do think it's important to recognize that it exists and it's happening. And that as magicians, if you're not going to be part of that, which I personally have chosen not to be, or trying, I'm really trying to not be part of that, that you have, um, techniques tools and ideas to be able to not combat it but work with it Mm. one thing i've always noticed is that sleight of hand is very difficult to duplicate Mm. you can't just copy it you cannot just buy it you can't buy it either so the price of admission is 20 years 10 years five years Mm. Price of admission is, you know, isolation in a mirror with the deck of cards or whatever profit is like, that's the cost of the good stuff. If you can buy it, the audience can too, you know, and not only that, but they can Google it and find it instantly. And the fact that we're now a mockery in society, and we have been for many, many years, but also the incredible thing about, you know, audiences really being ready to embrace magicians in a, in a higher way is extraordinary. We're in a new golden age of magic that I don't think a lot of people are, are utilizing, as well as we could be but that being said i know it's Mm. the the pump is primed you know like it's ready for it we're really just waiting for the audience to um we're waiting for the magicians to bring forth the material that the audiences really want to see and right now that's not happening as much as i think it could be
0: but do you think at one point there might also become a split in how the audience perceives magicians
1: there already is
0: or well rather magic because like very often there already is there is like there's many divisions but I mean, do you not think anymore that if people see a bad magician once, they will say magic is shit? I don't like magic.
1: Well, I mean, I think that it's not. I think you're taking the wrong direction. I think that once someone says a great magician once, they go, Mm -hmm. "Oh, I didn't know you were a real magician." Mm -hmm. I remember when I started receiving that comment from people, and it was it's a very sweet comment, but at the same time, it's a very sad comment because it implies that they thought that there was they have a bar, there's a line to audiences. And they've seen magic below that line up until that point. Mm. Oh, I didn't know you were a real magician. What does that mean? What do you mean? What are there other ones of fake magicians running around that I don't know about? I didn't know that. But the fact that someone says that tells you a lot about what audiences are thinking. Yeah. You know, I always try to work in rules of three. If someone says something to me once, I just let it fly. Second time, nah, that's a coincidence. The third time, And this is like over time, it isn't like, you know, if someone comes to me and goes, is magic real? That's a funny question. Okay, a year later, a week later, a month later, whatever, someone else goes, is magic real? Okay, that's interesting. And then the third time I go, all right, now I need to like pay attention. Mm. The third time, now I recognize that audiences are asking a real question. They really wanna know. No one asks that question because they want the answer to be no. It's a humiliating question to ask and get the answer. No, of course it's not stupid but also they're telling you they think it is real what are you going to tell them no it's fake good luck no god no are you kidding me it's time to start defining it of course magic is real of course it is it's not what you want it to be it's not like a harry potter movie where i wiggle my finger and then a feather flies and it's a physical reaction to a physical action magic isn't that but i'll tell you when you see something that looks so real that you feel it in here When everything else in the world goes away, your entire mind goes blank. Your jaw goes a little slack. You squinch a little bit. And usually there's that little puppy head tilt that... And then they turn to the person that they came with and that they trust the most. And they both make eye contact at the same
3: time. No one has spoken a word. They pause for a second, and then they look back at where the magic came from, from you. That's real
1: magic. That feeling you get during that whole thing, that's real magic. And the fact that they're feeling something new, and now they're asking me questions about that, but they don't know really that they're asking that question. The game has changed, my friend. The game has changed tremendously. There are different different categories of magician. If they think, oh, you're a real magician, that means that they believe in it and that you've passed that test. Mm. But it also means that they've been
3: walking around looking at everybody else going, not good enough not good enough that did not satisfy my expectations Mm. not as good as i was hoping it would be but guess what you will never hear about it Mm. because they will never tell you if you're not good enough how could they true I think
0: that's a good point to end. I would love to have you, (laughs) but I have to eat.
1: Like I have. (laughs) A very dramatic point to end on. Are there any
3: last questions, Rico?
0: Yes. Okay, hit me. I remember being in Blackpool, and you, um, you, you you made a very small comment, which, which is, is very interesting to me. It was. I explained which books I read and then you said, well, if people find the right material, they can get really good, really fast. But that is true. That also made me realize, and I'm not sure if you know what's in print at the moment, but um, it also made me realize that like, when people ask me like, what should I read, I used to tell them, I'll read this book, this book, this book, and this book. Cause those were the books I bought when I was younger. And then I started to discover a lot of those books are not in print anymore. It's so, true. A lot of those books are gone. So do you know of any books or and, or the way for younger magicians, if they're watching this, to start learning magic in a way where they can properly develop like their world view of magic?
1: That's really hard. You know, one of the saddest things in magic books publishing right now is that pretty much all of Vernon is out of print.
3: That's really wild if you think about it. Like book it's book hard to get a hold the, of Vernon.
0: It's the Leipzig book, I think.
3: All of it's out of print. Well, the
1: think- book, the Leipzig book, the yeah. Diverner book of magic, the Chronicles volume 1 through 4, Intercontinental trilogy,
3: Ultimate Secrets, the Symphony yeah. of the Rings, all out of print.
0: But didn't Vanishing Inc. like recently reprint the Leipzig book?
3: I'm not sure how they would legally.
0: I think they bought the rights to the Furner books.
3: That's impossible. Okay. Because no one knows who
1: owns the rights, because I've tried to track them down too. Really? The rights to the Vernon books are yeah. The rights to the Vernon books are caught up in all kinds of weird legislation because of the company that owned it that sold it to another company that went bankrupt. Like trying to follow where the rights went for the books is almost impossible. I have no idea who owns it. If they like republished it, I would love to know how. Now they may have bought LNL's catalog and believe they have the right to do it, but they don't because LNL I believe signed like a ten-year contract or something rights for it. But the company they sent that they signed the contract with ten years ago—that's the one that like. Was dissolved and I think it was based in the UK. So there's all kinds of weird rights around this. If that's in print and and the Vanishing Ink is doing it, I don't know if they're doing it legally. I don't know. I don't know. So it's not that's not a statement of them doing it incorrectly. I do not know. I don't have enough information to make that assessment. I'm not a lawyer. I don't have that research in front of me. I don't know what the arrangements that they have with whatever companies to do it is. Didn't LNL do it
0: with Murphy? Didn't Murphy's buy LNL? Could also could also be. I just I just know Vanishing Ink sells the front of books. Or not the Vernon books, just tribute to Nebel Leipzig?
3: The Leipzig book would have been from Supreme Magic,
1: but Supreme Magic would have been under the publisher. Even though Vernon was the person that wrote the book as the author, I don't know how they would possibly get that book without getting the rest of the books. You get everything or nothing. There's no in between, I don't think. I don't think it was ever Mm -hmm. divided up.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Now, that being said, L&L also republished the Vernon books, the Leipzig book and the Malini book. Now, they may have copies of the original old one that Murphy's had in stock, Uh, in stockpile and they bought a whole bunch of them that makes sense to me Mm. but i if they reprinted it that's where it would become a little bit more interesting and i'm not sure about that i just don't know i don't know enough to make that that claim
2: but the rights to the vernon
1: books are an absolute nightmare to try to figure out but anyways that wasn't the question the question was where can you read and what can you read to start and what's um what's accessible a lot of the dover reprints are really important books to read because they're they're there they're inexpensive Mm. and they often have extraordinary magic in them The challenge for most of these older books are that they're in the public domain which means they were written a long time ago so when you read them they don't read as easily as normal books normal books modern books do so if someone were to ask me like what should i read my recommendations always vary depending on what the person's trying to accomplish like what's your goal Mm. most people that ask the question are usually looking for card magic what should i read to get better at card magic what can i read to learn more about card stuff and if that's the case and we're trying to be really accessible um, I would say that you could, you you'd do much worse, you'd have a hard time finding better books than The Card Magic of Paul LaPaul, which is in print, Stars of Magic, which is in print, Maria Did has Stars of Magics um, out there, you can find them, I've got like four copies of this old book, it always comes up. Um, I'm just, I'm just talking about like sort of close-up card magic-y stuff right now. But I'd say Stars of Magic is a very good book to find that is in print. Expert Card Technique, of course, is an extraordinary book on card magic that's, that's very available. Um, the Card Magic of Paul Le Paul, The Royal Road to Card Magic, although it's not a book that I've spent a lot of time with. It's not my favorite. I dove right into the really, really hard stuff. But that book is an absolute treasure trove of extraordinary magic and material. Um, I think a lot of people are turned off by the fact that stuff is old. And, which is, which and that's unfortunate.
0: Yeah, that's unfortunate. Last question I was going to ask you because you you mentioned very often that your library doesn't go much further than the
1: 2000s. Well, why? I say I I don't know anything after Vernon died, Mm -hmm. which is not true. Of course, it's not true, but um. Yeah, you know, I, I tell that to people when people are like, do you know about this, do you know about that? I don't know modern magic stuff that's come out so much. I see some stuff, I see people's work on it occasionally. Like I see people perform some of the stuff from these different modern books. And, and I don't wanna knock anybody. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to insult anybody, but generally speaking, I find that the quality of the newer work that's come out that I've seen doesn't really compare to the quality of the older work. Mm-hmm. Um, I see that there's obviously a very big gap in information transferring from one generation to another. I see a lot of stuff being republished in, the, in an inferior uh, version. I call it the devolution of magic. Magic is devolving. In Vernon's time, it was like Vernon published the best of, of the moment. At least that's my perspective on it. That's how I always felt. When you go through Vernon's handling of something, try to improve it. And I think it was Max Maven that may have said this. There's an old, old series on the history of magic, and it was a show that was on in Canada way back in the day. It was done by a Canadian production company. And someone mentioned that, like, you know, when you start working on a Vernon trick, often you try to improve it and change it and tweak it and improve it and change it and tweak it. And by the time you come all the way around, you're like, finally, I've perfected it. You realize you're back at the original handling that Vernon gave you.
2: Yes.
1: And I think that's really important to recognize Vernon published the best of, he gave you the finished product. Marlowe gave you every version of a thing. He gave you every step of his process. The only big difference is Marlowe showed his work. Vernon didn't. He was like, here's your answers, you know? And Mm -hmm. I find that now a lot of people are going back. And before Vernon died, I think that, you know, Vernon was king. Vernon's way of doing it was the adopted way of doing it. And now, like I said, fame is the currency. So many people are willing to work for peanuts if they can get their name on something. So Mm -hmm. I see a lot of people are releasing or re-releasing older material, even from people who are alive, in worse versions or in versions that were discarded by the people that have published it before, just to put their name on something and put it out there and it's become this like this giant landfill of magic where you really got to dig a lot further and harder to find that really great stuff mm-hmm. but the older magicians that do have those older libraries and have those older books don't have that because they didn't they weren't there for that time
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know they don't have those those experiences so I think if you're, if you're a young magician or you're a magician in general and you want to get into magic, you would do very well to find the Dover reprints, specifically um, Expert Card Technique, Royal Road to Card Magic. If you can find any of the Vernon material, I think Inner Card Trilogy is probably best of the Vernon books if you had to just, just pick one. The Die Vernon Book of Magic is a beautiful book with wonderful material if you can get hold of it. Um, Stars of Magic is still in print. That is also like a must-read book. Uh, the LaPalle book is everywhere. And it really is one of my favorite magic books because it was the first book that I read and I was like, oh shit, a real magic book. And you're like, what does that mean? Well, it taught you the techniques, the actual sleight of hand movements and things that you really wanted to know. Mm-hmm. It was like, it was really the real stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, turnover passes and beautiful color changes and top changes in four different ways and like, like really stunning stuff. And the incredible thing about it is like, I never see anyone do anything from that book. I don't know why, the material's incredible. I mean, even looking behind me, like what else is there? Uh, and you might notice I'm not recommending Urdenes, and there's a reason why. It's not because I don't think it's worth it. I think it's absolutely worth it. It's an extraordinary volume, but I'm not recommending it because it's very hard to read. It's a really, really difficult book to read, and people get frustrated very quickly,
3: very, very quickly. Uh, let me see. Yeah, you know what? I, I think I think I'm happy with that. But that small list of recommendations
1: I
2: think it's a good for, list.
1: for the sole reason that and none of those books should be terribly expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, Stars of Magic is probably the most expensive of those books, probably. just because you're going to be getting it sort of newish from uh, Mary. You did. Mm-hmm. It's in a soft cover and a hard cover. The information is more important than the format. So get the soft mm-hmm. cover. Um, but I do think that books are challenging for most people to read and that's why most people don't read them. It's just, it's too much work for them. But I would also say that the difficulty in attaining the information is usually what makes the information valuable. Mm. You know, most people are fascinated by some of the stuff that I'm talking about or doing because they just didn't do it themselves. It's just new to them. Mm. But the novelty is just that they didn't do the work to get there yet. Um, or maybe they never saw a reason to, Mm. and hopefully, hopefully, you know, fingers crossed, I'm doing it in such a way that they feel like that they've got a better, um, maybe a better idea of what maybe not an understanding, but they've got a, they feel like they have a different goal. Once it's visualized for them, Mm -hmm. one of the big things in magic is if we don't see it, whether like it's actually performed in person for us or just in general, if we don't see it, we don't uh, realize how good it is. Mm -hmm. But if you've seen it, you've seen it in someone else's hands and that's sort of part of the problem. So being able to read a magic book or see a magic trick, read it, and be like, this is going to be great, is one of the greatest things you can do. And I think it's really important that even at a young age, and it takes a long time to develop, find good mentors and stuff that help you find really, really good material, but um, d- to develop style and taste in magic, that's that's a big one. That's a big one. And I think if you don't, if you kind of ignore a lot of the modern material and go back and really steep yourself in the old stuff first, and then you come back to modern day stuff after you've like avoided it for a few years of study, you'll find that you're very,
3: very original compared to other people because everybody else has been learning from the same textbooks. I think so too. Definitely. Um, I, I really have to
0: go.
1: Um oh, I understand. Wait. Go do your thing. I'll just throw a quick plug out there. If you want to learn more stuff or you wanna hang out with me some more, um, I have a Patreon which is, um, simply, uh, uh, you go to dobettermagic.com, which will take you straight to it. Or if you go to patreoncom backslash Shane Cobalt, it's just my name S H A N E C O B A L T. Um, we have, uh, it's like a monthly subscription and every month we have extraordinary magicians. Like it's, it's the best magicians that I can, it's all my dream magicians. It's the, the friends of mine or people that I just, I really admire and absolutely I love their work. And um, they, all, they they come on and they do lectures for us every month. The lectures stay up for the entire month. Um, you're also people are welcome to be there live, of course. We send a link out so people can pop in. And um, yeah, I mean the different ranges. I've got three different price sort of tiers, and they all get you access to the same thing. It's just usually broken out based on when someone was actually able to come in and uh, and join the Patreon. So if you're interested in that, certainly check it out. Just dobettermagic.com. And we have our own little private store. If you're interested in sort of the lecture notes or things that I've written or, or stuff that I've done before, um, we have a little shop, conjuringcollege.com. And uh, and that's attached to the Patreon as well. You, you need to be a member of the Patreon to get access to the store. It's kind of like Costco or Sam's Club. Um, yeah, so I think that kind of wraps it up with a little bow. If you want to check it out, do better magic. Uh, yeah, do better And
0: I could recommend the Patreon highly because, dude, you have some... you're on it (laughs) i am but i see some people lecture on there and i go like what the fuck like
1: yeah we got some good names man like the last year was unbelievable like we did we did an, an uh we did an Ernest eric event with bill uh bill goodwin ray cosby we had Lisa Cousins come in. She knew him well. We had Jeff Corn that knew him. We had Andy Frost from the UK came in. Was demonstrating stuff like we had a really st- like stellar lineup. <laughs> Recently we had like we had Jared Kopf lectured for us. Paul Vihill came and lectured for us. Jim Jim Steinmeier and Earl Nelson came on and did a um, an entire Alan Wakeling event, which was incredible. Chip Romero popped in. We had some other people like Friends of Allen's that were popping in and talking about it. We had um, Kainoa Harbaugh come in do coin stuff. We had Curtis Cam come do a lecture. We had Avi Yav do an incredible lecture. Alan Rorson lectured for us. Chris Philpot came in doing theatrical stuff. Steinmeier came in and lectured just on impossibilities, like self-working things. We were like, we're all technical sleight of hand guys. And Jim fooled everyone so badly. Like the Patreon has been like my wildest dreams come true. It's all my favorite magicians in the world coming out, and everyone that comes on the show, like, like comes on the show, comes out of the Patreon, gets paid very well. It's like no one's coming and working for free. I'm always trying to make sure that money is going around in the magic community and that people are getting paid very fairly. That's the other thing. When someone comes and lectures, you get paid well. It's not like you get like 50 bucks, thank you so much. Like you do get paid well, um, especially during such difficult times. So mm-hmm. if anyone's listening to this and you're, you're an extraordinary magician and you think you've really got something beautiful to share with the magic world, please get in touch with me. And if you'd like to do a lecture, we can certainly talk about it. Um, I'm currently in talks with Alex Boyce in um, in New York, and I think we're probably going to have him for January. Uh, December is still a bit of a surprise. We're still putting stuff together for that. And uh, yeah, there's it's just it's a never-ending flow of magicians that you would never expect to perform or do a a lecture a workshop like this and um yeah we have we have private workshops as well so like jared Kopf was doing private workshops on things that you will never see him do workshops on again you know like like the tarot deck you know we have private workshops on that john wilson lectured for us recently as well which is amazing dave malik did lecture like a month or two ago um very particularly on uh, professional magic professional magician and the different things like that and it was great i mean If it's your cup of tea, I'd say I highly recommend it. And then on top of that, every month, I always, I I usually do every once in a while, I get a little bit sluggish, unfortunately, and it overlaps into another month. But um, we often get to see some really old footage that you would never see otherwise. Or I'm teaching a trick or uh, usually a trick and a technique every single month. And I often come in, I'll do lectures as well. I did an ask me anything lecture the past month with a lot of material covered, sleeving and coins and cards. Oh, my. Uh, (laughs) Um, yeah. So there's a lot of wild stuff in there. You guys have access to me, of course, in the process and you can ask questions and it's like, I think what the, the highest price is 20 bucks a month. I think that's right. And then all the stuff that I do, that's like my, my material that's out there. Um, I generally leave it up there. And the other lectures, like they come down after the month or two that they're, they're up for. If you missed one, for some reason, you email me, I usually make it available through a password just for you so you can go back and watch it yourself. So it is a really, really special group. And um, it's been a real lifeline during the pandemic for a lot of people, uh, myself included, certainly just for the interaction with people and the new magic for people to experience and there's essays that get written and I think it's worth your time. I think it's worth your time. I think Rika would agree.
0: (laughs) Definitely. One of the better places to find magic online these days.
1: Hey, I'm happy to provide it. And I hope it goes on. I hope it continues on as long as possible. You know, I think people are enjoying it. And I think that it's, oh, that's my camera committing suicide, which is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, I'm pretty sure that's my gimbal dying. So let me see if I can turn it back on again and we can sort of end it. The battery is depleted. Of course, the battery is depleted. So I'm going to I'm gonna have to take this thing and, and lock it in place so it can't go anywhere hilariously. There we go. Well, we exhausted a gimbal, so I'm gonna say that's a, a fantastic time to call it, Rico. Thank you so much for having me, thanks for um, for doing the interview and having me on the podcast. And yeah, hopefully people get something good out of this.
0: Of course, man. I hope uh, we can have you back in the future and have uh, another talk.
1: You know what, man? I love to do it in person, especially when this world opens up again. I'm dying uh, to get out of here and jump on a plane. You know what I mean? Fuck yeah,
0: man. Let's 2022,
1: get... that's our year, 2022.
0: Okay, let's, let's, let, let's get some beers in the camera and we just roll
1: you just want to just want to drink on camera jesus can you imagine i'd be on a, i'd be on a rampage i'm like ah, all this horrible stuff yeah you know this- what we can do it sometime maybe that's a good idea drinks and right. uh, and a deck of cards cocktails and conjuring we'll figure something out
0: <laughs> thank you shane
1: cool you're welcome man have a good one
0: you too man